Thank you for tuning in to the Identity in Me podcast. This episode is part two of my conversation with Dr. Marshall, who was my featured guest for the Care in Me episode. In that one, we left off with Dr. Marshall talking about her penchant for donating money, and that's where we picked up in this segment. I found that when I took the profit motive out of things that I did, um, I just found myself just living in this abundance, right? Like when I stopped thinking of, oh, there's only one job that's good for me. If I don't have, you know, this object, you know, my whole life is over. If I don't borrow, if I don't own it, right, then it's no good. But I learned I can borrow things. I can lend things. It's, I can share things. And, and so that kind of economic journey was such an important part of how I think today, um, that I believe that everybody has a place, everybody has a say. Um, we all do this together. We don't do it without each other. Um, and so that's that I think all works together for me. I'm I'm stuck on all this money you've given away. Like, do you have it added up? Like, do you have a general sense of how much? What do you donate on an annual basis? And are there particular causes that stand out for you that you support? I don't. Well, here's the thing. I I rarely support kind of the big organizations like, you know, Red Cross. I mean, I do donate blood. Like, Red, if you have a website and a mailing list, you you don't get money from me. But I belong, <laughs> I belong to lots of um, mutual aid yeah. Groups um, that do different calls to action for, um, for example, um, Black single mother. We did a, a thing for Christmas and we just like women had these Amazon wish lists and we bought Christmas presents for kids. I bought um, care packages for Black college students. Um, so that's something I did. I was in a, a session this past weekend about anti-racist education and the person, the woman was telling, she's a teacher, she's telling us how she's all this work and her school's just like grinding her down. I said, girl, do you have Venmo? I want to send you money for a massage or something. Just do something nice for yourself. So I just sent $200. Like, here, go do something nice for yourself. So so for me, it's it's not, it's never about getting a tax receipt or writing, writing things. It, it really is the only, and again, like I said at the beginning, Having a family that's been so touched by substance abuse, I have a lot of experience with 12 steps and AA, and they say the only way to keep it is to give it away, right? So I ha- I can't hoard, like I have to give. And that's how I get to live the life that I live. And I live a, an absolutely amazing this, life. This is a sermon right now. This is a sermon. I hope people are taking notes <laughs> for real. I love, listen, I love my life. I do. What aspect of your life do you love the most? I love that I get I get to have choice. Um, but I, I was even at my job, I'm always thinking about like what I'm leaving behind. I'm always thinking about what's been left for me um, and how to kind of kind of march along. Like I'm never out in front. Like I never want my name on anything to be like, oh, that I'm not interested in that. Like, I'm interested in kind of doing good work, like stepping back when it's my time to step back, like going forward when it's time for, it's time for me to go forward. But I don't 
I don't have a big ego to quote Beyonce again. Um, oh, no, and I have to cut you off here. I'm sorry. I know that is the worst thing to do, but I got to okay. jump in with this thought here. <laughs> Your generosity comes across in different ways. I talked a little bit earlier about the Oma Book Club, and then the Oma Book Club gave way to the summer seminar series. Yes. Um, and I remember the conversation with you uh, that we had outside on that warm summer day. And so the idea was to simply have an extension of book club, but in the summer. That was in my mind. Okay, get a group of students together. They're interested in improving their writing of racial narratives. Um, you're willing to do it. Get them reading a little bit more and writing and boom, that's it. And I And going back to this matter of generosity, um, and no ego. And I remember you like, so what do you want out of this specifically? And I'm like, well, I kind of gave you the general thought, like in my head, I was thinking that. And like, you're still trying to pull more out ideas out of me. And I'm thinking to myself, and you got the PhD, you're Dr. Marshall. Like, who am I to tell you how to run this? And you legitimately wanted to hear from me about how I wanted the course to evolve. And I'm like, oh, well, in that case, you know, I'll offer my opinion, but in my mind, I never had you asking me some pointed questions about what I wanted out of that. And I so appreciated your willingness to ask for my opinion and genuinely want to hear it. Um, and so I'm learning a lot about you in this episode and now I get it. It's like, okay, this is real and it manifests, it comes across in different ways. Right, because I, I wanna hear what everybody has to say. Because if I go and I say, well, I know what's best, then usually it means I'm getting ready to mess up. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, usually when I'm in the mode of bringing people together to collaborate on something, like I see myself as a facilitator, I bring folks together and then I kind of let them do their thing and then come in as needed as I hear things kind of creep up. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I try to include the, uh, you know, if there's a, a clear lack of uh, inclusion in whatever we're discussing. Okay, like how can we um, deliver this better and make it work for more people? Um, so I usually don't come in with the idea, it, it comes in later. But anyway, um, so other ways that this caring nature shows up in this uh, lack of an ego. So you're also a staunch opponent of reading the N-word in class. Mm -hmm. You want students to feel affirmed in class, and that's kind of why you don't want the N-word read in class. Students have expressed pain, and you're like, let's listen to them and, and not fight this and not read the N-word. Meanwhile, you do have other authors who are saying, I want you to read this, right. and instructors who are saying the text loses its meaning when you don't use the n-word or read it aloud and i know i've had my own thoughts on this where i'm sitting in a class and i'm like so do we absolutely have to like read this verbatim aloud to be able to examine it like you can't read it in your head then speak it you put up a fight and you got a concession was it challenging for you to bring this up to your colleagues and work through it it was challenging first off because like I've been, so see, I'm 44 now and I've, I graduated college in 2000. So probably what, 1998, 97, 98. 
is like probably when I really started um, studying African-American literature. So I've been studying Black literature for over, <laughs> oh my gosh, for over 20 years, if I'm doing the math right. Yeah. Um, so, and I've had a range of teachers, a range of, of, of books, um, you know, kind of Black exploitation, you know, Black arts books, slave narratives that have used the N-word. Um, I've had teachers, esteemed, you know, Black professors say it. And it's just, that's just what it was. What became tricky once I got here was, one, these students are not English majors, so they don't have that kind of broad background of hearing the word in lots of different settings, right? So if, if, if you have one book, a term, and the word is in it, right, that's very different than my experience of having, you know, a much years and years of it. And then I just saw that, you know, again, reading Black at Exeter, that it was causing the use of the word, it wasn't just causing like, you know, I feel weird or I don't like the word or I don't like the book, right? Because there's a way to say I read it, I don't like the book, right? I don't like the author. But it was coming in between classmates. And so it became about like, well, that person, they seem to be a little too happy saying it, where <laughs> the teacher's insisting that we say, and I don't feel it's right. And I don't feel like I have a space to say anything. Um, and so that's what really got me working on this because I saw it as, oh, here's a problem. And although I have a different experience with this word and a different history reading this word, the students are asking for this. And I feel like it's something that if they're asking for, then I have a responsibility to do something about because they can't. Right. So I'm not going to sit around for years and let's, you know, twiddle our thumbs and let's study it some more. And I see that's the stuff that I don't do well. And that's why when you say I'm in these meetings, this is me and me. I'm like, look, we, we know. Right. And so what are we going to do about it? Um, and so that was the concession. And as far as bringing it up with colleagues, I don't care. Um, I really I really don't, um, because to me. If somebody somebody has to look me in my face and tell me that they will do they will continue to do a classroom behavior that is harming black students, you have to talk. You have to say that to me, and, and I don't you know, want to hear anything. And you don't about, see that happening. And I don't. And the thing, and this is the thing, because I've studied black literature for so long. I know how to study black literature without using the word, right? And so. And I've been black longer than anybody else in this department. My colleagues, right? And, and I, I also, I believe this. I have a very, um, you know, a very protective nature. Like I want to preserve. I want to protect this black, this young black brilliance, right? And I, I, I don't want them to be cut. You know, they say, you know, you cut a thousand cuts. Like I don't want that. For them. And so I stand between them and that, and I will happily do it because somebody did it for me. And other than your grandma, who you said was a teacher, were there mm -hmm. other teachers who looked out for you in this way? I mean, you said somebody did it for you. Were there particular teachers who influenced who so, you are as an instructor? You don't have all night to talk about this. So my second meditation, which I don't know, maybe I can't remember if I did the closed one and then this one. I talked about Dr. Cheryl Wall and I have a good friend, Alexis Gums, who says 
If the mentor is doing their job, then the students of the student will know that person's name. Mm. My students yes. know Cheryl Wall's name. She was the department chair. I'm not going to get choked up. She was a department chair when I got to Rutgers. So after I left Dartmouth, went to community college, said, oh, I like this women's study stuff, went to Rutgers. She was our department chair. I'd never had a Black woman professor. She was a chair of our department. She studied Zora Neale Hurston. She was on a PBS documentary. I wanted to be just like her. She was so smart. She had all these books. She spent her life just studying Black literature and the Harlem Renaissance. And she just knew everything. And I wanted to be like her so much. And I was so young and I thought I knew everything because I was a young English and women's studies major, but I thought I knew everything. And she was really great at at showing me like, yes, like you have this passion, you have this, this fire. Let's see how we can put it to good use as opposed to, you know, just being like, "Ah, I hate everything. Um, And what she did is that she taught she taught me that I don't have to spend my time. And again, I'm looking at Toni Morrison's picture. I don't have to spend my time being distracted by racism. I can take all of that energy and all that passion and use it to study Black literature. I don't have to sit and point out what was racist about Heart of Darkness or what was racist about Faulkner or whoever. I don't have to fight, oh, should we be doing Jane Austen? Like, I, I, that's not my ministry. My ministry and my students, you know, this is to immerse us deeply into Black literature. That's where I spend my energy. And so, and that's what that woman taught me. And that's why when I'm here, or in in lots of different things, I don't center white opinion. I just don't. My son doesn't rise and set around white people's opinions. Um, and And I've seen it happen to other black people and I my heart really it breaks so I gotta let my audience know we are 13 minutes over and I am not inclined to stop there's so much more bubbling for me and I'm not going to end yet can I have a few more minutes of your time of course course. I'm just chilling out you know what did you earn your PhD in English English okay and what was your dissertation my dissertation was called, so far, it's called Sisters in Crime, and it was about um, Black women, Black women writers' representations of Black female criminals. And so I was kind of interested in criminology, kind of racial histories, of, racial theories of crime, yep. um, how those intersected with kind of gendered um, issues of, of crime, like why did Black women do the things they do? And, but instead of looking at... Um, kind of what we think of as crimes today, like, you know, robbing a bank or something. I did things like, um, you know, Ida B. Wells getting kicked off a train for violating segregation laws. So how, why were Black women being ejected from ladies' cars on trains and streetcars and theaters? And so so the fact of, of declaring oneself a lady was an illegal act, right? Um, when you re- when we read Beloved and we think about Margaret Garner committing murder, so how do you murder an enslaved? How does one enslaved person murder yeah, another enslaved yeah. person? And and so those questions were so um, so deeply tied to what it meant to be a black woman. Um, and I I keep you know I want to go back to that work like I loved that work. Um, 
right towards the end of it, I started writing about the death penalty and Black women. And I was looking at this one particular woman, Wanda Jean Allen, who was executed. Um, and she was called the man of her relationship because she kills her partner. And so I was like, well, how is that language of like Black womanhood and kind of masculinity all kind of working together. And that led me to thinking about chain gangs. And so I, it's all, for me, it all goes together. It's just, it's all such a fascinating history, but I'd like to go back to that work. And how did you get there? Did this mentor lead you to that topic for your dissertation? Well, no, well, I like I said, I was English and women's studies in college. Then at that time, I was working on um, Black, gay, and lesbian literature. So that was my undergrad thesis, was looking at kind of how Black nationalism was painting Black queer people as being like outside of the nation, right? Because they were like heteronormatively producing and, you know, they were too interested in white people. So all these, all these reasons. And I said I was going to go to L.A. because I wanted to look at the Chicano movement. And I want again, I was just really interested in like cultural nationalism and how people who were deemed kind of like sexually outside the family. Right. Because there's a way that like La Raza was being like also construed as like a race and a family. And so it's just really interesting to me. But anyway, I got to California and then just like, wow, there's a lot of prisons here. Yeah. And so got into that. And then um, I remember at some point I was still thinking about Black women and 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 prison or at least Black women and lesbianism. And I was like, wow. So I started going to like WNBA games. I was in LA. I would go see the Spark and I would look at like Lisa Leslie. And I was like, like, why do people keep talking about like these women playing basketball as being manly? Like she's like, what? so then I got interested in like black women in athletics. And I was like, well, why are they, why does this keep happening? Why are these representations of black lesbians? Like, why are they always playing basketball? And why are they always in prison? And that got me. So I'm always like on one path. And then I'm like, oh, they seem to be in prison in these movies. Let me go look at these women prison movies. Oh, look, there's Pam Greer. I, wow, I wonder what else is it. Yeah. So I've always been on this kind of, I don't know if it's a road or like swirlies or something that always just leads me. So it's just those, I just shift and I'm like, oh, I want to shift. And I just keep following where my brain takes me. You just offered a nugget and a half to students um, who uh, about how to find what it is that they want to study or learn more about. And it's really experiencing life. You know, like get proximal to a community you're interested in and just observe and let that drive your curiosity. And as I think about our students, I feel like you have an additional nugget to offer here in closing. So you dropped this <laughs> a few minutes ago yeah. and I want to go back to it. You talked about your college journey. So you started at Dartmouth, Yes. You then went to community college and then to Rutgers. See, I was following. Hey. Um, can you talk to me about your college journey? Why was there a start and stop? Ultimately, where did you end? And what did you learn from all of that? Um, I dropped out of Dartmouth. Um, I, I, like I said, I'm from Newark, New Jersey. And I went to Dartmouth um, because I wanted to be a doctor. And the Surgeon General at the time went to Dartmouth Medical School. So I was like, I'll go to Dartmouth Medical School. This is the extent, like when I talk about 
you know, the lack of, you know, college counseling in my life. Like that was the last, like, oh, this seems like a good thing to do. I'll do that. Um, I went away to Dartmouth, absolutely hated it, hated New Hampshire, hated Hanover. I thought it was just completely isolated. It was, it was the absolute wrong decision, um, decision for me. Um, and I got very depressed and very, you know, just very sad. And I didn't yet have the language for it, which is the other reason why I love women's studies. Um, I love being English um, teacher. I love being English major. And I got really depressed and I wound up being hospitalized for six weeks. And then I, this, and I went back and I said, well, I'm going to try it again. I'm going to get through it. And I realized I didn't want to, and I wasn't happy and I wasn't liking it. And so I left and I went home and for the, um, what do you call it? I think I had, I, I guess what we call med leave. And so I was there and I spent like a year and a half at home and I was like, well, you're back. Basically you're back home in Newark. You got a high school diploma. <laughs> like, what are you going to do? Everybody got a high school diploma. And so you out here trying to, you know, trying to have some type of a job. And so at one point I said, okay, I'm going to try and go back. So I did everything they told me to do. I go back and they hit me with this bill. And I was like, I'm not spending, I'm not going into no more debt for this school. Um, and that was when I decided to go to community college. And so I went to the college that was in my city, Essex County College, where they had Kool-Aid in the dining hall. You know, they had, you know, you could buy clothes and incense and like the students in there. And it, I just, I loved it. I went to school with people in their fifties. Like it was just, it was so much fun. Like I loved it. Um, and that's from, that's where I think I get my love of public space. I love public transportation. I love laundromat. I love anything that's public, anything we're yeah. sharing yeah. together. I love it. So that's, that was my journey. And then they had a program where if you graduated from ECC with a certain major, certain um, GPA, you get automatically into these other colleges. And so Rutgers was on the list. Rutgers State University of New Jersey, everybody went. I was like, I'm never going to Rutgers because everybody goes to Rutgers. And sure enough, I went to Rutgers and I loved it. <laughs> so. And you are so brilliant and you went to Rutgers. Say that again. I went to, I went to Douglas College, which is the women's college of Rutgers. So I'm a women's college graduate. No, you know, and I, I said that intentionally, you know, it, it drives me crazy when I have conversations with young people who try to um, place a value judgment on a person based on where they went to college. Um, mm -hmm. And I worked at a community college. I met a lot of really intelligent, hardworking, passionate people who are doing great things in the world. They started at the community college and transferred to four-year school. Some of them didn't start at the community college. They had your journey and everything worked out ultimately. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the more impactful professional experiences I've had. I often think about um, the community college where I worked and all the young men that I had a chance to really connect with through my basketball program. Um, but I know firsthand I know there are special people walking on those community college campuses and they get a bad rap. And here I am talking to somebody who leveraged that opportunity and is doing awesome things in the world and impacting people in very profound ways. So 
We appreciate you here at Phillips Exeter. If we don't make that known often, I want you to know from me that I appreciate you immensely. Oh, um, thank you. And, and, and like I said, every meeting, you, you got something for me. You do. You, you keep it very real. And, um, and I appreciate that. And I wish honesty and straightforwardness was something that just came in bunches. Um, That's just the streets talking, though. That yeah. A lot of this is just, you know, they, you know, I, I got a little bit of money, but, you know, this still, I'm still the same, North New Jersey, <laughs> what it do, said what, you know, I, I keep, I keep that, and I, I want to keep that, like, I, my father had a second grade education, I never want to be in a space where I make people in his position feel bad, where I'm talk like, talking big words and stuff, yeah. like, that's not, that's not me, I don't want that, real talk. And- at some point in the last few years, I decided to be more colloquial at work. I don't know if you've picked up on just how I present in meetings, but there initially when I started in my career, I was trying to speak in a way that wasn't me. And one day I said, um, why am I doing this? Why am I trying to be somebody I'm not? And I need to just be authentic and I'm gonna be far more comfortable being myself if I can bring myself to work. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I do. And mm-hmm. that's what you do. So anyway. What they like going I said, to we, fight me? Which one yeah. to fight me? Yeah. Nobody's fighting Dr. Marshall. Right. <laughs> Nobody's fighting Dr. Marshall. Because then I was like, so, because I have a PhD in English, right? So he's like, you have a PhD in English, but you're from North New Jersey, right? So how do we kind of put those two things together? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, Dr. Marshall, thank you so much for taking time to be on the episode this evening. Uh, we went 30 minutes over. And Sorry. as a result, we are going to break this episode in half. Uh-oh, so you're going to have to... a cliffhanger in between. Exactly. <laughs> where to stop it. There's going to be a part one and a part two. I will figure out where to stop it. And I'm not going to cut yeah. this part out of the edits. <laughs> I want people to know that this was not part of the plan, but I just couldn't stop. Oh, y'all, you're funny. He's funny. All right. Well, Dr. Marshall, you have a good night. And I look forward to seeing a lot more of the work and care that you bring to this community. Oh, thank you so much, Dean Camillus. It's a beautiful, beautiful experience.